We are starting, though, taking a look. As you know, it is the one-year anniversary since huge floods in the Fraser Valley. As well, we heard from the provincial government just recently that Highway 8 between Merritt and Spence's Bridge now fully open to all vehicle traffic. So we wanted to talk a little bit about infrastructure and how things are going. Dave Earle joins us, president of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Jill. Uh, let's start with uh, Highway 8 or looking at that infrastructure. How are things going and how, uh, how challenging has it been for truckers? You know, it, it has been such a challenging year, but I have to give real props to the contractors, to the women and men that worked on rebuilding the highways and to the Ministry of Transportation for really focusing and getting us back really, really quickly to almost where we were uh, you know, pre-disaster. So uh, it's been a remarkable journey. Um, the news that Highway 8 has reopened is really welcome uh, for those local communities. It's not a big truck route, but certainly uh, providing access to those people that live in the area is just so critical and important. And like you said, not a big truck route, but anytime we see a highway washed out or a critical piece of infrastructure damaged like this, that's got to be difficult or have a ripple effect when it comes to, like you say, getting things to people and accessing those areas. It does, Jill. And I mean, as, as much as the infrastructure has been largely rebuilt, we've still got a long way to go. Um, you know, there's still a, a bottleneck on the uh, the Coquihalla in one area. There's still some resurfacing that's going to have to wait until the the summer and spring next year uh, to fully bring that right back to where we were. And then the at-grade uh, separation on uh, the Trans-Canada 1, I mean, that's going to be until 2024 uh, before that damage is, is fully repaired. So uh, we've got a ways to go yet. How is that um, having an impact on truckers then as far as those bottlenecks and those projects that are ongoing? But is that slowing things down and causing kind of more concerns for truck drivers? It slows things down a little bit, Jill, but I mean, we've been able to adapt. Uh, when we look at the, the usual delays, I mean, maybe it's 20 or 30 minutes on, on Highway 5. At times, to be sure, it's a lot longer because of heavier traffic volumes, uh, but that's manageable. You know? And then when we look at Highway 1, uh, again, uh, if you get through there where there's no trains running on that, uh, that level grade, um, you're not going to be delayed at all. But sometimes you can be delayed uh, quite a while, but it's manageable. Does it show us where there are or were vulnerabilities or, or perhaps vulnerabilities in the system that we weren't giving the attention that they needed? Oh, there, there sure are, Jill. I mean, and that was, if, if one thing we can take away from that uh, is the need to develop a really good, resilient supply chain. And I'm really happy to say every level of government has been heavily engaged on this, uh, much more since the disaster. Um, there's lots of work being done uh, to determine what can be done to, to protect our infrastructure, to come up with alternatives, uh, to be better prepared should something like this happen again. And do you think we are in that position? Will be? Will we be better prepared? We're going to be better. Um, you know, is it ever going to be enough? We just don't know. I mean, that was. A, I mean, I hate using the word; it's been so overused. But an unprecedented disaster. Um, you know, are are we likely to see that again? My gosh, I, I hope not. Um, but the work is continuing. I do know a lot of the infrastructure has been rebuilt to better, stronger standards. 
Uh, there's been a lot of armoring of riverbanks. There's been a lot of work done, and that will continue to be done. So I, I'm hopeful we'll be better, but uh, I just don't know if you can ever be perfect. No, that's probably a tall order for for sure. Uh, How are things going then as far as I know we're talking infrastructure and physically getting from point A to point B. But of course, we've been also dealing with the high cost of fuel, with inflation, the high cost of goods. That's got to be having an impact as well. It sure does, you know, and I mean, one of the things when we look at transportation, it, while it's certainly a contributing factor, everything gets built in, um, we've had these fuel prices for, you know, the better part of a year. Um, so those costs have been well baked in, and as we continue to see that it, that increasing inflation, there are other factors at play that are completely outside uh, of, you know, certainly our industry's control. Uh, government's trying, they have limited tools to deal with it, um, but yeah, it, it's a continuing uh, cause for concern for sure. All right. Dave, your your phone went a little fuzzy there. I don't know if your microphone or how you were holding it changed a little bit. It, it felt like it went just a bit fuzzy away from you. Oh, sorry about that. There you go. Is that better? Yes. There we go. That's right. So, so, so I think... Yeah, the, the cost is pretty much baked in, but yeah, it, it is certainly a concern for us. And I know as well, we've spent a lot of time, and thankfully we're not focusing on this or needing to focus on this as much as what, what we, of course, talked about the border being closed and the, the measures that were in place before and, and the, the hardship that was causing on, on some truck drivers. Uh, but have we come to the other side of that, or are things different now that we're kind of on the other side of that? Just about, Jill. I mean, as, as things start to come back, and uh, I use the phrase, the lights come back on, uh, we're seeing a return to a new footing. I can't say a new normal, because I don't know, you know really if that, that applies, but we're finding our way. Um, you know, we're finding carriers are, are still able to meet the demands of their customers, and uh, you know, we're able to deal with the surges, and we're starting to see bottlenecks in the supply chain start to ease. Um, it's coming. It's going to be a little bit longer yet, but uh, it, it's certainly getting back uh, back to a better footing, that's for sure. And when you talk about the supply chain and that, uh, the, with the optimism, what makes you optimistic that we are getting back to and dealing with some of these issues? Uh, the, the main thing is the stability, Jill. Um, when we know, and when, when a trucking company knows how long it's going to take to move a, a, a load from point A to point B, they can plan. Um, they can manage their routes, manage their drivers, manage their time. It's when things are very, very uncertain and you end up with long delays and you end up with equipment in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's when things really get confounded. Um, so as we get to a place of stability where it's, it may be taking a little longer to get things there, uh, we can work with that. It's just knowing, uh, basically knowing what the rules of the game are. Uh, and we're starting to get there. And I'm curious as well, Dave, we haven't talked about this a ton, but we talk about so many industries that are now struggling as far as finding workers and employees. And I know this industry is a little bit different, but how are you as far as were people drawn to the industry during the pandemic? Did people leave the industry or where are things at as far as the numbers, members of the Trucking Association and truck drivers themselves? Yeah, we, we treaded water, Jill, uh, is what it came to. We had many people leave during the pandemic. Uh, drivers were a particularly old demographic. And so when they uh, we got into the pandemic, uh, there was a place in time where we probably lost about 10% of the drivers right across the country just to early retirement. They just say, you know, 
I'm 65 years old. I'm not going to continue to drive for another couple of years. I'm done. Uh, We did attract more people into the industry, and we were able to keep functioning and keep going. Uh, But we've had a perennial shortage of workers in every area of of our industry for many, many years. Uh, And now we see that across all industries. So uh, while many industries struggle, and we're one of them, it's unfortunately nothing really new for us uh, being short of the people that we'd like to have. All right. Dave Earl, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, imagine spending years traveling around the country on foot. That is what my next guest has done as a solo adventurer, seeing many, many parts of this beautiful country. And that trip just recently wrapped up. Well, Melanie Vogel joins us now. Melanie, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thanks for having me and hello from Victoria. Hello to you. And I know you you wrapped up this journey uh, just a couple of days ago. So take us back to the beginning. How did this start? Oh, it started um, just with that thought of wanting to go for for an adventure. And I had read about the Trans-Canada Trail and decided in 2016 that's what I'm going to do and prepared for it for one year. And on June 2nd, 2017, I stepped on the trail in Newfoundland, Cape Spear, and that's where it all began. Wow. And do you remember what it was like or what was going through your mind that day when you took that first step uh, to, to the, what became a very, very lengthy adventure? I think what I remember is that I thought, man, my backpack is really, really heavy. <laughs> you can, I think there's not so much of um, that there's too much um, of thought running through, through your mind of how big that journey really is because you're, you're there in this very moment and, and from the very first moment, you just make it through day by day by day, step by step, you know. But... Um, to add to this, there was a moment when I walked um, on the east side of Canada, and it felt like, man, I'm 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 on the east side of Canada for so long now. <laughs> like it seems like I will never come to the west coast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a long way to walk. That, that's for sure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, how did you decide? I know you you were on the Trans Canada Trail and and followed that trail. How did you decide then, even early on, exactly what route you would take and how far you would walk each day? When I prepared for this journey, um, I thought I would walk. 25 kilometers a day and this journey will take me two years from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. I didn't even plan to go to the the Arctic Ocean by then because I wasn't really ready for it. But it's not not going like this. What I did not take to to account is um, how I feel every day, how the weather might be, how the trail conditions might be. And so um, it turned out that now I would not even talk about an average of so many kilometer per day, but I, I tell people, well, I walked everything between zero and 50 kilometers a day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A pretty big range. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was, you started on, it was June 2nd, 2017, again, like you said, in Cape Spear. So you would have had, I would imagine, nice weather in the beginning, if not potentially, I would think maybe even too warm on some days. 
No, it wasn't too warm. Um, <laughs> it was actually a foggy day when I started this journey, but the fog cleared over the course of the day, and there I was um, uh, dipping my feet in the uh, Atlantic Ocean. So, and it was very exciting. I remember this as a very exciting and touching moment. And so it was also then coming here to the Pacific and doing the same five years and five months later. <laughs> wow. And and you call yourself or, or describe as a solo adventurer. Did you walk most yeah. of the time by yourself or did people in towns or places, did people ever join in with you? Most of the, most of the time I, I walk by myself, but here and there, once in a while, um, people who, for example, hosted me along the way would join me for a day's hike. Or I just walked a piece of the way with people who were on the trail anyways, you know, and we just bundled up and walked together for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And you mentioned as kind of hosts and that. So where did you stay along the way? Um, I stayed in my tent, but uh, there were quite a lot of people who hosted me along the way. And that is something that was very, very beautiful because it's also people who make this country, right? And it was such a nice way to get to know this country by by being hosted and uh, hearing the the story of people in their home and their communities. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about it, so more than five years that you walked, mm-hmm. were, were there ever points in that where you felt like mm, maybe maybe this is coming to a close or you kind of lost the momentum? Oh, yeah, of course. You have these days because um, such a long journey is also very demanding on your body and on your mind. And there were days where I really struggled and uh, I was really tired and exhausted and had no motivation to go and procrastinated. But I promised myself if the struggle and the pain outweighs all the beauty and and the positivity that I experienced in this journey, I will stop. And that never happened. I I understand, though, that you did at one point, it wasn't your own decision really to stop. But of course, this would have happened as the pandemic happened as well. Mm -hmm. What kind of an impact did that have on your your adventure? Uh, When the pandemic hit, I just made it into the Yukon. And I had to wait for one and a half years until the North Northwest Territories would open their border to non to non non essential travel again. And uh, it was uh, challenging because um, I had to juggle all of this from the road. There was no home to go back to. And again, there would be people hosting me, taking me into their homes, making sure I'm taken care of. I also uh, stayed for eight months working at Eagle Plains on the Dempster Highway. Um, So it was a challenging time. And I do have a travel companion, not a human. It's on four legs, Malo, my dog. And it was because of him that I kept still walking every single day because he needed to go for his walks. And so that kept kept me, I always say that kept me sane during the time of the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think yeah, a lot of people, maybe not to that extreme, but certainly a lot of people will relate to, to that. But but Mallow, mm-hmm. your dog, now you, from I, I understand you adopted Mallow in Manitoba. So how did that happen? Yeah, I met Mallow uh, as I walked. With, actually, someone joined me for two days on the trail. Uh, um, a family father of a family that hosted me there. 
and uh, and we met Maro on the trail, and he walked with us for 25 kilometers, and then um, we would go back and uh, approach people and knock on homes, um, but nobody seemed to be related to this dog and know about this dog we, he belonged to, and so we kind of looked for a month to see if we can find the owner, but nobody came forward. And then after one month, um, I'm like, you know, like love wins. I was like, okay, I, you know, let's adventure together. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, wow. Amazing. And he could keep up or the dog could keep up, or I guess you could keep up with the dog as well. It seems like it was a, a very good fit. Oh, he had such a positive impact on this journey because he actually stepped right into my journey. Then, you know, my, my the spark for discovery and my curiosity was on a really low flame. I was exhausted. I um, I was tired, and and there he was. And he every day was new to him and new excitement. And he was so enthusiastic to walk into every day with so much curiosity that it it's kind of contagious, you know. And so um, he, of course, also became. Um, um, talking point number one with the people who hosted me along the way. So yeah, the, he, he kind of brought the, uh, the spark back or like lit this flame anew for, for, for this adventure. And, um, and, oh my God. And he, he made every day just so much better. Every break, uh, settling in with him at night. And he also made me feel safer now sleeping in my tent. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was curious when you said that you were sleeping in a solo adventure and sleeping uh, in your tent, if you did ever feel unsafe or, or uneasy uh, when you were doing that. Well, there is a lot of fears uh, we are growing up that are irrational. And then, of course, there are very some rational fears. But um, like sleeping alone in the dark in the in the forest was like so creepy for me um and then hearing the sounds all around me not even knowing what it is that sneaks around my tent but i learned over the course of my journey that sometimes it's a squirrel that makes the loudest noises right so um and i felt pretty well prepared uh, with the tools that i had on my hand uh, bear spray and bear bangers and a knife and an emergency whistle so to keep safe, but having a dog on your side who has much better listening and 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 a good bark when something really comes close to our tent, like like a wolf visit we had on the Dempster Highway. So mm-hmm. it does. He is a good um, how you say. Um, he, he's good in alarming me to get ready when something is close, and and you know I have to to be ready to protect myself. Yeah. Right, a good, a good guard dog mm-hmm. or a good uh, guardian. Yeah, exactly, yes. Um, do you have mm-hmm. any idea how many pairs of shoes or hiking boots or w- whatever you wore on your feet, how many you went through during this adventure? You know, I'm getting lately this um, question asked quite a lot of times, and I realized for the longest time I always say 10, and I'm saying 10 for too long now. <laughs> I actually have to go back because I haven't really, I have really lost track how many shoes Maybe around 15, I would say. Could be even more. All right. Uh, So, and again, so you were doing this for more than five years. You ended Mm -hmm. your trek at Clover Point in Victoria just a couple of days ago. What's Mm -hmm. next? 
Good question. <laughs> um, right now, I'm um, I'm kind of uh, wrapping up loose ends here and there. Um, I do want to go back to the Yukon. Uh, since I stayed uh, in the Yukon during the pandemic, I really have fallen in love with that territory and I want to go back there to live there for a while. I want to see my parents and my family, um, my brother and sister back in Germany. I haven't seen them in eight years, so this is high on my priority list. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, I want to write a book. Well, it sounds like you have more than yeah. enough material to do that for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, Melanie, thank you so much. I know it's been a very busy, well, it's been a busy few years, but I know so many people have been wanting to talk to you and learn more about this this week. So thank you so much for taking the time with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your show. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Beautiful one out there. And it was also a pretty nice weekend. And a lot of people took advantage of that clearly and made a trip across the border. So much so that some stores in Bellingham actually broke their store sales records. So joining us to talk a bit more about this is Guy Ocio Grosso, president and CEO of the Bellingham Regional Chamber of Commerce. Good afternoon to you. Yeah, thank you for having me so much. Uh, well, it's uh, interesting to, to be talking to you about this because I know throughout uh, the past couple of years, uh, we've talked about <laughs> what it was like with the border closed and the very opposite of this, uh, but sounds like it was a very busy weekend in Bellingham. It, you know, it certainly felt that way. Um, I had not heard the, the the staff that you you led into with, so that's certainly exciting. And I I would have to say not entirely shocking uh, given the last couple of years and given the, the, the historic trends that us humans like to use. Uh, so, yeah, I look forward to chatting a little bit more. Right. And that was specifically uh, Trader Joe's saying that they broke their store's sales records on Friday and that, that Canadian cross-border shopping, uh, not only is it back to pre-pandemic levels, but it actually seemed like it was exceeding that. So, but it sounds like, like even with the records being broken, that's not a huge surprise to you. Uh, I would say specifically because of this uh, past weekend, um, traditionally, uh, in that time that we like to call pre-pandemic, um, we always saw when there was a Canadian Canadian long weekend matched with a U.S. long weekend, we would always see those numbers um, be pretty significant. So uh, that is not shocking to me, especially considering we're entering the holidays and um, the the few other three day weekends or in this general time period tend to be family oriented ones. So this one I think was ripe for a uh, shopping trip. Right. And, and I guess too, and with Remembrance Day, uh, even though uh, people tend to sometimes not really think of it as a holiday so much as, as a, a day for reflecting, but because it did fall on a Friday this year, it did make for a three day weekend for a lot of people. And it seems like a lot of people did take advantage of that. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think on this side with Veterans Day tends to be a very, you know, um, a day that people appreciate. And I think people really took to some of the stores. I know I was out and about this weekend and there was, it felt full and it felt full like prior to the pandemic uh, felt full. 
So I think you couple increased spending, which we're seeing, at least in the U.S., um, across the board. You couple both countries having a three-day weekend, um, finally getting to a point that feels, I I would say it feels more post-pandemic than it's felt since the pandemic, which again, probably a little bit of a no-brainer. So that makes some sense too. So I think just all of these things coupling for that perfect storm of um, sales that matched with feelings of, wow, things are getting back to normal. And that probably put people in a good mood too. Absolutely. I was seeing as well, and I don't think there's any official numbers or or perhaps even official uh, looking at this, but people have been posting pictures of children's pain and fever medications. I don't know if you had heard, but in Canada, we have a shortage of those medications. Uh, Not so, we understand in the United States. And I was seeing a few people posting pictures that they'd gone to the States and and purchased that. Uh, I do wonder if that maybe was a pull for even some families or parents of small children? You know, I do not know, but I would imagine it It was. Um, I had heard that, uh, that Canada was experiencing that shortage. Um, I have not heard anything about that on the state side. So that would, that would lead me to believe that yes. And generally speaking, when we're looking at cross-border shopping, particularly this time of year, I think it's a yes and situation. So I I would imagine that probably was a a component of the impetus to go shopping. And you mentioned- At least across the border. Right, right. You mentioned that this is kind of that that time where it was a three-day weekend for a lot of people. We're not Mm -hmm. fully into the the holiday season, although I think some people perhaps are. Uh, Oh, I think some people are (laughs) full-on holiday season at this point, including retailers. Right. And do you see, is that a a lure, do you think, or do you see a lot of Canadians coming across the border, coming to Bellingham uh, with holiday shopping in mind? You know, I think it's very similar to before, a yes and situation. I think our retailers, and I think this holds true in Canada as well, uh, inventories are really high. And so I think retailers, even as recent, as long uh, with the Amazon pre-holiday Prime Day, which was I think sometime last month in October, um, we have seen this this push uh, from retailers, and I think on um, from a price point perspective, but also as an uh, advertising perspective. So I think retailers are certainly um, spreading the holiday cheer, if you will, uh, in the encouragement form. And then additionally, I think people are excited to be back, and um, it feels, at least by many people that I talk to, it feels like the pandemic is is more in the rear view than it is what we're looking at. So I think more people are apt and feel safe and confident to cross the border. I know some of the the um, restrictions have lifted, and so I think that certainly uh, aids to that uh, that increased border traffic too. And uh, interesting when you when you talk about that because you're right, and it certainly was uh, when you didn't know if you were going to get pulled in for a random test or, or you had to quarantine. Uh, it didn't make it uh, so doing a day trip, uh, whether you were right. going a day trip from Canada, didn't didn't make a lot of sense. But uh, I guess still some restrictions in place or some requirements, but uh, not not enough that it's keeping people from doing that. Correct. Yeah, I think especially compared to this time last year, where I again the last three years of 
been a fun time to just kind of remember what when was that when was that change and what was that like at that portion of time but i'm fairly certain at this point last year things were more closed than they were open I think it was only up until maybe sometime in December where the border really loosened to a point where we would see some increased border traffic. So when you look at setting those those records, um, whether it's a record setting or it just feels super busy, I think both could be very true because we've not seen this amount of traffic or this amount of cross-border purchasers uh, since 2019. And how much if of, ever oh, if, or exactly and so, yeah, so I'm saying that this is this is more than we've seen in the past. Um, mm-hmm. How much does it and and for people that live really close to the border, I know people tend to to go for gasoline all the time or things where mm-hmm. they they know it can be a great deal. But how much does the dollar really factor in on that? Do you think as far as do, do can, I would imagine Canadians who are very savvy at cro- cross border shopping know kind of the the numbers can work the numbers to figure out whether or not you're getting a really good deal. Uh, yes, I think yes is the simple answer that won't take 15 minutes. But uh, yes, I do believe that we have some pretty savvy uh, Canadian shoppers that come down for specific items. And to your point, the exchange rate is certainly a component of the of the purchase decision, as is the, the sales tax savings, or let's say tax savings in general, because uh, I know it's not necessarily a sales tax um, up there. And then I would say the availability of items, and this leans into the children's medicine. This also leans into more traditional retail uh, brands that are just sometimes more accessible here than uh, across the line. So yes, exchange rate is a big piece. I would say depending upon the item, and in the case of many items, it is the biggest piece. Uh, It's certainly the easiest one to track. And how much do Bellingham businesses depend on those Canadian shoppers, especially as we get into this busy holiday season? You know, I've always looked at it as it's not um, a reliant situation. I mean, a great case in point is, especially from our large retail uh, retailers, which have which see most of our Canadian uh, customers. We didn't lose any during the pandemic. Um, or at least we, we may have, but I need to double check my, my, my math on that one. Uh, but I don't believe we lost any of the, the big national retailers during the pandemic. So that says to me that these stores are placed with the expectation that the local market can sustain it. With that said, we certainly appreciate and uh, value uh, Canadian shoppers coming across. So it's not a reliance, but it is a pretty significant appreciation. All right. Well, Guy, it's always good to chat with you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to talk to you about this today. Yeah, thank you. Well, it is a year since we were focused and talking to people in the Fraser Valley, talking to those who had watched as floodwaters came in, in many cases, cutting them off from main pieces of infrastructure and causing a ton of damage, to say the least. So we wanted to take a little bit of time to look back and look at this past year and see how things are doing now. And to do that, we are joined by Matt Dykeshorn, who is a dairy farmer and was stranded on his dairy farm in the Sumas Prairie a year ago. Matt, thank you so much for being back with us. 
not a problem. Uh, when we talked to you, I remember we talked to you last year and it was uh, kind of just uh, as everything was happening and uh, chaos to say the least. Uh, how are things doing now? You know, if you pulled up on the yard now, you'd be forgiven for not realizing there was a flood a year ago. Um, the crops, uh, we actually had a pretty good crop year. The barns are back to normal. Um, the animals are healthy. So a lot has changed in a year. And how long did it take to get things kind of back to that state? Um, the cropping was probably the longest. Uh, we had to reseed all our fields. So that was, that was probably mid-July before we actually had everything established. Um, there's still little things on equipment that we have to fix, like starters and wheel bearings and that sort of thing that, that's, that's going to go for a little bit yet. But the barns and yards we had cleaned up within a, a couple of months. And uh, I, I remember talking to you and seeing pictures of animals that, that looked quite frightened, didn't quite know uh, what to do. And I remember you talking about the, the cold weather and, and the cows in some cases uh, where it was a very dire situation and that not, not only were they not used to that, it was dangerous for them to be almost submerged in this water. When you look back at how, what was happening and how things unfold, kind of what goes through your mind? Uh, it's it's still hard to believe it happened. Like it's still uh, there's still a little bit of shock involved, and uh, yeah, and and a little bit of fear that at this point there's nothing has been done that would prevent this from happening again. So it's always in the back of our mind, but we try not to let it uh, try not to let it rule us. And when you talk about that, because I did want to ask you about what has taken place as far as building back better and and making it so this couldn't happen again. But like you're saying, it sounds like not a ton has happened. Um, there's a lot of consultation and and that, and we knew there would be that would happen. There's they've got to do studies and modeling and all that sort of thing. But uh, no, at this point, if we had. Uh, if we had that kind of a snowpack in the, the foothills here and that kind of a rain, the exact same thing would happen. So what could be done or what do you think when you look around it, at what was kind of the, the weak spots and what contributed to this? What do you think could be done in the short term even to better protect the area? The biggest thing that would help me on my farm is um, damming the Nooksack properly. Um, Dikes across Sumas Prairie uh, don't really help me at all. Um, a new pump station isn't really going to affect me because the water the water isn't in the Sumas when it comes through my place. Um, it spills out of, uh, I think, Johnson Creek in, in Sumas. So the biggest thing that's going to help us is if the Americans do something on their end. And there's, I know the farmers down there are quite upset as well, and they're lobbying hard, but... I'm not sure there's the political will to do something about that there. So we're, we're kind of just biding our time and trying to get involved any way we can in the, the decision-making process. Right. And, and did you get the sense and when you talked to farmers on the American side of the border, when this happened, did you get the sense that they suffered similar types of damages to their crops and to their machinery, or was it different? It, it was a little different. For them, the water just passes through. Um, the, uh, for us, the water starts to build up and pool, and then the lake bottom is, is even worse because then that's, that is the lowest spot. And with the dike breach, that's where the water ended up. 
but uh, there's a lot of damage to houses and and buildings and and fields in, on the American side too. So they're uh, they're quite upset about the, the situation there as well. And I know we talk a lot about the physical the building up. Um, and like you said, even though the, the diking system, that wouldn't have a, a direct impact or at least not as much as, as dealing with the Nooksack River. And, and we talk a lot about uh, the physical area. Uh, but there was uh, such a loss as well when we look at the number of animals and, and what was lost and what life was lost during this flooding. Has that kind of, uh, have farmers like yourself, have they moved on from that or been able to, to kind of replenish those numbers? Um, the the poultry operations are from from what I understand most are back up and running not not all but most are have been able to, to place checks again um, there's as far as dairy farms there's going to be a hole in the herd where where certain um, yeah certain animals died and and that's going to take a few years to uh, to work through the system so no it that's something uh no, no farmer will ever forget is losing their animals. Um, that's for sure. And when you say it will take a few years to to kind of get that back or to to fix that, um, is is that finding uh, animals that that will replace those that were lost, or or what kind of makes it take a few years? Yeah, it's just with the whole breeding cycle. Um, when a calf is born, it's two years before they enter the milking herd. So if uh, if somebody lost a bunch of um, replacement heifers or even milking cows, um, you're, you're starting from scratch. So it's, yeah, it just, you know, or you have to start buying animals in from, from neighboring farms. And uh, yeah, it just, it takes some time. Uh, during the rebuilding and, and well and during the flooding and uh, rebuilding, uh, I understand it's, it's a pretty tight knit community Anyway, what did it do as far as the community? And not that the Fraser Valley is one community, but what did it do as far as kind of people coming together and getting through this horrible thing? Oh, it really brought people together for sure. Um, there's a lot of people have stepped up, a lot of um, churches, organizations. Um, and yeah, the, the community support has been incredible. Um, it's, uh, it's really overwhelming. And again, moving forward, I know we've heard from the provincial government uh, talking about uh, repairs and work that that is ongoing uh, as well, compensation uh, packages or compensation available uh, for farmers. Does that make a difference or does that help knowing that that compensation is there or that it's that that's being addressed? The compensation has helped us out quite a bit. Um, I know not everybody, there's a lot of loopholes or not loopholes, there's a lot of um, yeah, a lot of different programs and, and a lot of people are falling through the cracks, I'm hearing. But um, for ourselves, and I know a lot of the farmers, we have been able to, uh, yeah, haven't been able to access some funds, which in past years, it's been difficult to. So we're, we're grateful for that. And, and when you say some people, though, are falling through the cracks, is that uh, with the, the what it is or the requirements or what is required to, uh, as far as filling out paperwork or, or showing things? Yeah, like if you have a rental house, um, it's not you. You can't access funds to help fix a rental house, but if an employee lives in there, then you can. So there's, and if you're just a, a regular homeowner, um, then it's also that's a different category. So it uh, there's just a lot of a lot of paperwork to to try and navigate through, and and it's also a um, a program where you spend the money 
and then they give you a check back. So if you have to go out and spend a million dollars to to bring your operation back to uh, back to where it was, um, not everybody has that kind of capital available to them. So then all of a sudden it's it's kind of a stalemate waiting for the the money from the government, but you have to have invoices in order to qualify for that money. So there's um, yeah there's a few things that are going to have to be addressed on the program as well. Right, and uh, yeah, I would say. Uh, uh, not a surprise that not everybody has that kind of, of fund available uh, to them, that if you're going to try and, and, and build it back, that, that's the whole reason, isn't it, that you're asking for compensation is because you don't well, have it. it is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Has it changed very much as far as uh, what individual farmers are doing as far as equipment and having more equipment, whether it's pumps or generators or things, knowing that if this was to happen again, uh, there there could very well be a time again that you would be on your own? Yeah, I think if this were to, if the signs were there that it would happen again, um, we'd be a lot more proactive. Um, people have experienced this and so they're not going to take a chance again. Um, my dad had told me about the 1990 flood many times, and I, I believed him. I understood it. I was young at the time. Actually, living through it is just totally changes the perception. It's uh, you can tell somebody about a flood all you want, but when you've actually lived through it, it totally changes the perspective. So, if if we were to see those signs again, um, equipment and animals would be heading for the hills, literally. All right. Well, Matt, I'm so glad you were able to join us and talk to us more about this today. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, not a problem.